0: Here we go.
1: What a treat for the crowd. What a treat for the people at home watching this. 29, 29, eight and eight. Three swings, you can take one, smart. There's one for one.
0: Certainly a home run derby where records
1: have been shattered. Three swings for Jock Peterson to hit two homers.
0: Just want to give us more do it again the fans want more everybody at home wants more three swings again three swings oh there's man, one back no it's not
1: there's two Andy, 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 Andy. look at how into it Vlad guerrero playing
0: is. to the crowd oh man this guy has it yes oh. he
1: does peterson is sitting at 60 plus himself he needs two here to continue facing vlad guerrero jr and there's one
0: look at guerrero this is incredible <laughs> Oh, what a valiant fight by Josh peterson and the embrace from Guerrero Jr., what a show, we've never seen a swing off, let alone two of them. I mean, this gets better every single year, Paul, and I love the way that the derby has been put together, the timing, the you know, the players, listen, a lot of people were saying, why is Vlad Guerrero Jr. in this game, he's not an all-star, this is why he's here, he's putting on an absolute display here, and he's advancing to the final. What a performance by Vladimir Guerrero Jr. This rookie, 20 years old, comes in even with some of the players questioning whether he belonged there, and then hits a ball off the scoreboard, takes Jock Peterson to triple overtime, hits a record 91 home runs, really set himself on a level of being a Josh Hamilton-type performance in the home run derby, one that I think we'll remember for a long time. I don't think that that's just a, a Toronto perspective either. I think this is one of the... Best home run derby performances that anyone has seen in the course of the last 10, 20 years. This is At the Letters. I'm Ben Nicholson Smith, and this podcast, of course, brought to you by the all new 2019 Ford Ranger. I have a guest coming up later in the podcast, Ben Lindbergh, the co author of The MVP Machine with Travis Sochik. Really a great book about baseball player development and lots of applications to the Blue Jays. So, We'll get to that in a couple of minutes, but first I was at the all-star game this week and I want to recap just a couple of the takeaways uh, that I had in Cleveland being there for the home run derby and being there for the all-star game. It was pretty cool. I think that the highlight obviously was seeing Vlad jr hit 91 homers. I mean, that was an incredible, incredible performance by Vladdy and I think it put him on the map to an extent. I know in Toronto, We've known about Vlad Jr. for a long time. We've watched him for, what, 60 games now, a couple hundred plate appearances. We're used to Vladdy, and we're used to the kind of personality that he shows and the power that he has, even if he hasn't shown it that much in games. But this was the chance for Vlad Jr. to show off in front of a national audience. And it was really impressive to see him do what he did. And even the reactions afterwards you have great access to players at the all-star game. So I was able to ask guys like Chris Bryan or Clayton Kershaw or CC Sabathia, just in a a pretty casual way, what did you think of Vlad Jr.? Because that was a topic that people were were thinking of and talking about. And to a man, they were all really impressed. Alex Bregman also on that list. Uh, Marcus Stroman, of course, hyping up Vlad Jr. So it, it was cool to see these superstars, these MVP or Cy Young winning players, really impressed by Vlad Jr. And the youth is something that stuck out too, because in Sabathia's case, he has a son who's 15 years old. Tony Clark has a son who's 17 years old. So when these guys are asked about Vlad Jr., they're kind of comparing him to their kids. And Vlad is really a kid himself to an extent. I mean, he's not much older than those teenagers. Vlad Jr. himself was a teenager until a couple months ago. So to do that, just incredible. And I think he's got a big second half coming up. But... Of course, you know it wasn't just Flat Junior. The All Star Game itself was was pretty good, competitive, under three hours, good pace to it, well pitched, well uh, defended. You had some some big moments offensively with Joey Gallo hitting a home run, and it was a good baseball game with a lot of great players. Marcus Stroman, of course, didn't pitch in the game. He was telling us that it's good, it's good. I think this
1: little break should be perfect. I have a little workout series I'll do over the next few days traveling with my BFR system, so I'll be good, man. I'll be good. I'm excited throw a bullpen Friday and then hopefully be out there throwing Rockets on Sunday.
0: He's sidelined for now. He knows he's going to be traded. I mean, that was was really my takeaway from talking to Stroman on the Mondays, how clear it is for him that his days in Toronto are numbered, barring a a further setback on the health front, and he's come to terms with that. I mean, I think that at this point he's been through trade rumors long enough to know that this is – just what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. So he seemed pretty at ease. He really seemed to enjoy the experience. And as a first-time All-Star, that makes sense. He's surrounded by all kinds of other All-Stars. He's able to really connect with them, talk pitching with Garrett Cole, talk with Mookie Betts or J.D. Martinez about whatever it is, life, pitching, hitting. They have lots to discuss, and it's a pretty relaxed environment for these guys as much as they have a lot of demands it's not a game that counts on their final stat line. So the pressures of the daily grind are a little bit removed for them. And I think Stroman really, really enjoyed that. So we'll see if he's able to make his start on Sunday as anticipated against the Yankees, but that's a big one because clearly how he performs will either give teams a a real sign that things are okay or it could be a a warning for them that stroman needs a bit more time to recover so we'll see how that goes in the meantime i have a conversation here with ben Lindbergh of the ringer about player development about the toronto blue jays high performance about getting the most out of players i enjoyed reading ben's book the mvp machine and i enjoyed this conversation so i hope you do too Ford engineers set a grueling test regimen to prepare the new Ford Ranger for the demands of multi-terrain travel, durability trials, days of constant shaking, towing heavy loads, and traveling under heart-pounding, bone-jarring off-road conditions. The new Ford Ranger, it's more than up to the challenge of taking on your toughest test. Now, Ben Lindbergh will join me on At The Letters to talk about player development, and it's really such an interesting topic in baseball today. Teams are trying to get the most out of their players. Players themselves are trying to get the most out of their ability. And these changes are happening really quickly around Major League Baseball. So I wanted to talk to Ben Lindbergh, the co-author of The MVP Machine with Travis Sochick, about his book and really ask him about its applications to the modern baseball player, the modern baseball front office and, of course, to the Blue Jays. So it is a pleasure now to be joined by Ben Lindberg of The Ringer. It's a pleasure to have you on, Ben. Thanks for making the time. Thanks, Ben. Good to be here. So I want to start with some general questions. I mean, there are so many specific applications of this book, and you guys highlight them as far as specific players, specific teams. But in general, why is player development so important? How has it changed over the course of, I mean, the last five years, the last 10 years? You guys highlight some pretty huge changes in player development. Why has that happened and what effect has it had on Major League Baseball?
1: Yeah, we really think that this is the area of greatest innovation in the game today. This is the place where teams are separating themselves from the pack, where players are learning to change the trajectory of their careers. And there really hasn't been a book about player development before. I mean, there have been coaching manuals, but the sort of narrative story about player development we think has been sort of underserved by the vast baseball library in the past because I think it's... Tough to write about player development. This is stuff that's happening behind the scenes, it's in batting cages and bullpens and backfields. I mean, we couldn't even watch minor league games without attending them until the past few years. So, a lot of this was really invisible to the typical fan. And I think that's part of it. The other part of it is that player development has become much more of a science just in the past few years. And we've gone from the moneyball era that we've been talking about for the past 15 years or so, which is finding under valued talent that's already out there just getting better at finding good players by being better at statistical analysis let's say and and being better at valuing that past performance these days, every team is pretty adept at that. They're all looking at the same numbers for the most part. And so it's hard to really get an edge there. And now I think the competitive advantage comes from not being better at finding talent, but being better at building talent, you know, creating it, enhancing it. And I think that technology really has helped with that. And some of the devices that have come along, even just in the past few years, have enabled players and teams to quantify aspects of performance. That in the past, you would have just had to eyeball and approximate, and it would have been very difficult to identify these flaws that now can be identified, and once they can be identified, they can be fixed. It's such an interesting idea, and you guys pretty convincingly show within the book many
0: examples of essentially a problem that's identified and then solved, and then the players all of a sudden better. So it's pretty hard to argue with those results. But I imagine that some people hearing this podcast or some people reading the book might at first, at least, kind of bristle at the idea that a player can improve his talent level. Because I think that for a lot of us, maybe we grew up with the idea or we've been surrounded by the idea that, you know, a a player is what he is. You're born with a certain talent. You can either throw hard or you can't. You can either run fast or you can't. And to some extent, that's true. But to another pretty significant extent, you guys kind of debunk that myth within the book.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that's what made us want to write the book and tell the story is that, That was a really eye-opening idea to us because we kind of bought into that. You know, in baseball, you talk about ceilings. Players have certain ceilings, and once those ceilings are applied to them, in theory, they're not supposed to be able to exceed that performance. You know, you say that this guy has a ceiling as a below-average player or an average player, and yet we've seen in recent years so many players break through whatever their ceiling was supposed to be and be much better than that. So. That's not to say that natural talent doesn't matter, doesn't play some role in how good players are and whether they get to the big leagues, but I think that's a lesser component than we thought it was. We used to think it was everything. You had to be great and maybe you could refine your natural talent to a certain extent, but you weren't really going to overcome certain limitations. And these days, I think there are far fewer of those limitations because players can use data, they can use technology to just extract the most out of whatever talent they have. And really, you know, if they're someone who doesn't throw very hard, there are better velocity training programs now. It used to be that you thought fastball was just kind of an innate thing. Now we know that it can be trained to a certain extent. Or, you know, in the past, you might not have been looked at as a power hitter if you were not that big a guy. Well, these days, there's less of a correlation between power and size than ever before. And sure, that's partly because the baseball itself seems to have changed and it seems to be carrying better, but I think it's also because teams have gotten better and players have gotten better at finding the right mechanics, hitting the ball farther out in front of the plate, you know, pulling it, getting it in the air. So, there are certain ideas that I think were deeply ingrained that we thought Travis and I bought into, too. And then we saw Rich Hill do what he did and J.D. Martinez and Justin Turner do what they did. And the list goes on and on. And you can't really deny, I think, that with all this new information, with these new techniques and technologies that are out there, talent or performance is much more mutable than was previously believed. It's very convincingly shown within uh, the book and
0: some of it ties to a mindset and you guys talk about this or or write about this a lot within the book, the idea of a growth mindset as opposed to this fixed mindset. How much do you think that mental component of things like approaching a challenge or a potential challenge with the view that, hey, like maybe this looks like a, a big obstacle, but I actually can get through it. How much do you think that that mindset of seeking Uh, weaknesses and seeking ways to improve those weaknesses can impact an individual or impact a team?
1: Yeah, I think that's really important if it's sort of a, pervasive ethos in an organization from top to bottom. And if you have a a player development system where as a player climbs the ladder, he's hearing the same things, the same instructions from coaches at each level, and they're giving him clear plans. Here's what you need to be better at. Here are some very obtainable goals. Here's how you assess your progress. That's a a big part of this movement is just really a revolution in practice. Whereas in baseball, we used to talk about batting practice and bullpen sessions and and It was kind of a laid-back thing. You know. You go in there and you take some hacks and you don't really have a focused goal. You're not swinging at real pitches. And nowadays, I think teams are moving more and more toward that where they realize that to get better at something, you have to be trying to do something that's a little bit beyond your present abilities. Practice shouldn't be comfortable. It shouldn't be just rehearsing skills you already have. It should be trying to enhance skills and develop new skills that you haven't shown before. So... I think that is really pervading the game in a a – really, I mean, important way. And I think that in a sense, you put those things together that this mindset and makeup matters and what we were just talking about, about how talent maybe governs your destiny a little less than we had thought. And I think that your makeup, your approach to practice and your beliefs about whether you can be better about baseball matter more than they used to because this information is out there now. You can take advantage of this if you're interested. And so I think that will dictate to a greater degree than it ever has before whether you make the majors, whether you have a long and successful career whether you're open to this input, whether you realize that you may not have all the answers and you're willing to change and then you're willing to put the time in and practice in an efficient way. So I think that's sort of a hopeful message that you can kind of empower yourself. You can have more control over your career than maybe you, you might have in the past because Moneyball, I think was more of a team centric idea of sort of sorting through players and this guy could do that and this guy could do this and we'll pick the guy who's better now i think players are sorting themselves to a certain extent
0: it's interesting and of course as you guys write in the book moneyball at that time made sense cuz there was some pretty low hanging fruit out there right. where you could get the obp or you could get this you know reliever who didn't have a big saves total and it's basically free wins out there so mm-hmm. at that time it made sense but you know now things have have shifted you know one of the points that that you made just a minute ago really resonated with me the idea that if you want someone to improve you should probably give them a clear Path, some clear advice, yeah. something specific to hold on to and try to improve at instead of just saying go out there and post a better ERA next year.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that was a branch Ricky philosophy, actually. So a lot of these new ideas that we talk about in the book, we also trace how they are they have precursors. You know, people said some of these things in the past, but maybe the game wasn't quite ready for them or the technology wasn't there to make the most of them. But that was something that Branch Ricky would tell his coaches when he was with the Dodgers, you know, don't tell a, a player that he has to strike out less unless you also tell him how to achieve that goal. Otherwise you're just telling someone be better basically without telling them how to get there. And that can be very frustrating. And I think teams were doing that up until very recently and some still are because, you know, the one team that we focus on the most in the book is the Houston Astros because I think they really pivoted to player development first they understood that there was this great opportunity that this was going to be the next frontier of the game and they invested very heavily and overhauled their whole player development system but As recently as, you know, 2011, 2012, when they hired Mike Fast away from Baseball Prospectus and he played an important part in their using this information and translating it to the field, he said when he got there, he found that their player development instructions were the same thing that Branch Rickey had warned against. You know, just your command has to be better. They would tell players heading into the offseason and they wouldn't give them any insight into how to achieve that. And I think now... If you're in the astro system if you're in a lot of other systems uh, to an increasing extent once you get in there once you're a pro you get a full workup really day one you get the cameras trained on you you get the sensors attached to you you get all of this information and hopefully it's communicated to you in a way where you understand okay here's what i could be better at and here's how i actually accomplish that it makes so much sense it would be like telling you or me
0: hey, just write better articles or have a better (laughs) podcast. I mean, okay, (laughs) that sounds good. I'm up for that, but how? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. It's so applicable really in in any field. And it Mm -hmm. seems like the Astros are leaders in this department. As you guys researched this book and reported it, how big of a gulf did you perceive between, let's say the Astros are the, the leaders here, between the Astros and the teams that might rank 28th or 29th or 30th when it comes to getting the most out of players in their system?
1: Yeah, I think there really is a sizable gap. And and in the book, we focus more on the teams that are at the forefront of this movement. So we didn't really chronicle in exhaustive detail like a team that's doing it terribly wrong. And so... Maybe, you know, people have asked me since the book has come out, well, is my team good at this? Is my team good at this? And I think there are certain leaders, there are teams at the forefront, you know, the Astros, the Yankees, the Dodgers and the Rays, maybe. And then there's kind of everyone else and there's a a next tier down. So I think there is a, a really big separation because certain teams recognized that this was the way to go earlier than others. And And they were then more willing, I think, to do things that were sometimes distasteful, sometimes really challenging, like the Astros. Not only did they make a financial investment in acquiring certain technology, let's say, but they were fairly ruthless when it came to kind of cleaning house and turning over their whole minor league staff and expanding their player development staff so that if you weren't on board with the new way of doing things, you were gone. You could go try to catch on somewhere else that would be okay with that. But the Astros and some other teams, they're looking for coaches who are interested in this new way of instructing players. Whereas in the past, coaching was often about playing. You know, What was your playing experience? That was how you became a coach. Now it's, what do you know? What do you want to know? What's your track record of improving players? Are you open to this new information? So I think that's very different. And we Seemed to be at a point where there was some sort of parity when it came to Moneyball, when it came to pure evaluation, because every team had some kind of quantitative analysis department. But I think there is still a big gap when it comes to player development and the varying levels of investment because we could see the change even this past spring training. It seemed like every team was starting to at least dabble in some of this stuff. You know, they got a an Edrotronic high-speed camera or they had a RepSoto spin and movement tracking device in the bullpens at spring training. And so it seemed like everyone was getting on board. But on the other hand, this is more than just buying a certain piece of technology and having it on the field somewhere you really need a a full-fledged system and people who buy in at every step of the way and that can take some time to develop
0: yeah that makes sense and is that where that gulf comes from because you know comparing say the astros who within the book kind of come across as heroes and villains all at once of the mvp machine in, in some ways but comparing them to you know say the blue jays or maybe the reds or you know teams that are further down on that scale Is time a big factor in determining where these teams, how these teams compare to each other? Because, you know, in the Blue Jays case, their front office came over here in 2015 at the end of the 2015 season. So, you know, at that point, the Astros were already in on this by maybe a few years. So that would create a gulf if you're behind in implementing these ideas, even if you agree with them.
1: Yeah, I think that's part of it. And in the Astros case, there's a quote in the book from someone who is with the Astros and told us, you know, I don't know if any team has cleaned house as aggressively as the Astros did when Jeff Luno took over and just turned over the scouting staff, the player development staff, downsized the scouting staff in a lot of ways, just dismissed the pro scouts. I mean, this is going against baseball tradition and it's obviously there are aspects to that that aren't great, you know, getting rid of a, a lot of people who were counting on that employment. On the other hand, I think it has made them better that they've been willing to do that. And other teams, whether to their credit or not, they haven't been willing to make so dramatic an adjustment and haven't been willing to dismiss a, a lot of scouts and completely change the way they do scouting. And it's a different philosophy, but they may not think that they should do that. They may think that's too extreme. I think there's an argument for that, too. But it also is being willing to go against the grain and challenge these traditional ideas if there isn't always a basis for them. And, of course, traditional coaches, I mean, there are plenty of coaches who've been in baseball their whole lives but had inquisitiveness and open minds and they've adapted to this new movement and they want the new information. But there are other coaches who were more closed-minded and thought – I'm teaching players the way I was taught as a player myself. And I didn't have this technology. So why do I need to use this technology for today's players? And, If you have that philosophy, that's just not going to go great with this new movement. And I think there are certain teams that were maybe not quite as willing to, say, my way or the highway to that type of baseball lifer. So it does take time. And and we've seen, I think, that teams have realized that if they weren't early to this movement, then they need to catch up quickly. And this past offseason, the Astros were kind of plundered. You know, Astros coaches, Astros player development people, Astros front office people – They were very much in demand and were filling a lot of openings with other teams, which I I don't think is a coincidence. When one team wins a lot and does something different, all the other teams are going to perk up and say, well, if we can't beat them, let's hire them and see if we can bring some of these insights to our side. So now you see the Orioles, let's say, who were on the other side of the spectrum who weren't doing any of this stuff. Well, now they're run by ex-Astros people. So I think that's how you catch up. Although by the time you get back to where the Astros were, the Astros are then on to something else and you're playing catch up all over again.
0: Right. Yeah. In in a sense, the baseline has risen so high now where having a Rapsodo camera is really nothing in Major League Baseball anymore. I mean, it's something but doesn't put you ahead of anybody. The Blue Jays were one of those teams that that hired from the Astros last offseason, bringing in. Dave Hudgens, to be their bench coach. And we've mm-hmm. seen some differences as far as the way that the Blue Jays do batting practice this year, tied to their actual hitting coach, Guillermo Martinez, along with Hudgens. And it goes into that kind of practice, how you play, and really improve on the edge of your performance to attempt to get better. Where do you see the Blue Jays in relation to the rest of the league right now? Because as a they did have maybe a bit of a late start coming in here in 2015, but at the same time, they have Mark Shapiro... Ross Atkins, Gil Kim, and Ben Sherrington, for current or past farm directors, and that's a point of pride within the organization when it comes mm-hmm. to
1: developing players. Yeah, and Charlie Montoyo coming over from the Rays, and obviously the the Twins have had success with a, a manager that they plucked from the Rays, so I don't think that kind of thing is a coincidence, and you know, it, it's hard for me to say. Well, the the Jays rank, you know, X out of thirty when it comes to their player development sophistication. I, I don't think they're one of the top few that I mentioned. I also wouldn't be able to say with any confidence that they're bringing up the rear or anything like that. So I, I think they're sort of in that vast middle where maybe they're not at either end of of the spectrum. And you know, I'm not quite as personally familiar with the details of of their system as I am with some other teams that we researched and reported on for the book. I will say that the one area where they really have seemed to lead the charge is in sports science or high performance. Some teams label it differently. That's the idea of focusing on getting players prepared to play, you know, everything they do off the field, injury prevention, nutrition, sleep, exercise, weight training, etc. cetera. That's now something that's becoming much more quantified, too, and The Jays, I think, were the first team to develop an entire department devoted to that and to hire people, you know, internationally, people who had worked in other sports and had more expertise in those areas because baseball has been sort of slow to adopt all of that. And so the Jays have a, a vast department that is devoted to that. And, you know, it's hard to point to specific examples where that's benefiting them, but that's something where a lot of teams are now getting on board with that if they haven't already. It's not so much about just launch angles or spin rates, you know, there are other aspects of the whole front office infrastructure devoted to that. But this is more about how do we get guys closer to their physical capabilities? How do we put them in a position where they can then make these mechanical changes to be better at baseball? So I think that's encouraging because that is a trend that other teams are really investing in and the Jays seem to be the first or one of the first to that movement. I'm really glad that you brought that up because it's been a subject of a
0: lot of discussion here in Toronto over the last few years. And really, most of the discussion, at least, you know, privately behind the scenes and and some of the public discourse around the high performance has been extremely negative here in Toronto. And that probably comes from being the first. It was something that caught players off guard. And you heard over the years, say in 2016, when this was first implemented, If a player was, you know, they see a post-game spread and it's mostly healthy food, they might make comments like, where's the chicken wings? Like, these are comments that players, veteran players, for the most part, they made. And they had a certain expectation. And this high performance went against it. And there was a lot of pushback. So reading the way you guys describe sports science and high performance and the importance of it, it was kind of just a useful reset for me because to some extent... You kind of get sucked into this, you know, this group mentality of questioning high performance and, you know, not in a really significant way, but you're just you're pulled into the negativity around it. And then Mm -hmm. reading what you guys wrote, it was such a reminder that no, this is actually like so helpful make players sleep and eat and be hydrated and just have those have in some cases these basic things be taken care of in ways that they hadn't before.
1: Yeah. And I can't speak to the specific implementation on Toronto's end. I I tried to talk to some people from the Blue Jays Sports Science High Performance Department while working on the book, and those requests were rebuffed, which I, I understood. There were some people who didn't want to talk to us because they felt like whatever they were doing was some kind of competitive advantage, and so they didn't want to broadcast it publicly. So, You know, I can't say whether they're doing sports science the best just because they were the first, but I think the initiative, the desire makes a whole lot of sense. And sure, sometimes these changes are going to be uncomfortable. And we saw that when this Astros regime took over. And of course, they were losing and were terrible for a few years, which was part of the friction. But also, players didn't like the way they did things. They didn't like all these numbers. They didn't like defensive shifts, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, no one who has made it to the pinnacle of their profession and then is suddenly told, hey, you're doing things wrong or we could do everything better and why aren't you doing this and why aren't you doing that? Of course, I think it's natural for there to be some defensiveness there. And sometimes people aren't going to fit in with the new system. They aren't going to like it. and, And sometimes there are legitimate reasons for that. You know, we write in the book about how there are privacy concerns when it comes to some of this information extending into players' lives off the field. You know, it used to be you left the ballpark and unless you were Mickey Mantle being tailed by private eyes or something, because you were carousing all the time, for the most part, your business was your business. And now, you know, you might, if you're a minor leaguer, be subjected to all sorts of tracking and monitoring, so that if you're out drinking or something, your employer is going to know about it, and none of us would probably want that to be the case in our own jobs. So I under- I understand why there is uh, some suspicion there, and you know, minor league players are not currently part of the union, and they are not protected in the way that major leaguers are. So I think there are some concerns there, but. Teams will tell you, well, we're just trying to make these players better, and most of the players we talk to do think that's the case, and that their interests and the team's interests are typically aligned, that they're both interested in just making players better at baseball, you know, there are I'm sure some players who will be hurt by that additional level of knowledge if they haven't been already. But I think for the most part, they are grateful if if they're open to this new information that they can possibly be better. And and there are players who, you know, didn't realize that they had sleep apnea or something and they were feeling lethargic all the time. And then suddenly they're sleeping and they're way better. And these things happen. So I think there is something to be said for paying attention to all of that, to jet lag, to recovery, to, you know, the proper sleep schedule and and eating the right way. I mean, these players, they stand to make millions if they are effective. They stand to make their teams millions if they're effective. And so in theory, it doesn't really make sense to, you know, give them junk food all the time because that's not going to put them in the best position to succeed you would think not
0: far more important to do the research and and implement that in a way that doesn't come across as too abrasive and i do think you know right. not to totally let the blue jays or astros off the hook here because the astros in their implementation at sometimes were quite abrasive and mm-hmm. the blue jays didn't implement their high performance team as well as i think they probably should have in hindsight there were times that star players on that team ran into conflict with it. And if that's happening, then it's not being implemented, even if the ideas themselves have a lot of legitimacy.
1: Right. And that is so important for this process. And that's something that I felt well positioned to write about because my first book with Sam Miller, The Only Rules It Has to Work, was about us, our, our you know stat geeks coming in and running a professional team the independent league Sonoma stoppers for a summer. And we had all these, we thought bright ideas, and we're going to do this shift and we're going to have batting orders that look like this. And we're going to sign these players. And we found that when we actually got there, we really had to figure out how to persuade players and coaches to go along with us. We didn't want to just be tyrants and say, do this, do that, because the owner said so. You know, we want them to be on board with it or else they're going to be grousing. They're not going to really give their all and they're going to resent our presence and We had some struggles with that, you know, partly as a result of the messaging that we employed that wasn't the best way to go about it. And so I think a lot of major league teams have run into that same problem. You know, you have these insights perhaps in the front office, you know that players should do this or should do that, or this guy, he hits the ball hard, but he hits it right into the ground. And if he could just change a swing and hit the ball up, he'd be really effective. Or this guy has a great pitch that he doesn't use enough because there's this philosophy of establish your fastball and fastball first and but this guy's got a great slider and he should throw that more and so this knowledge was there but there was a bottleneck. It wasn't crossing that gap from the front office to the field. And it's so important to have the right messengers, the right communicators. And often those communicators tend to be the players themselves or former players. And that's something that we call a conduit in the book. Someone who is a recently retired player who has that credibility, who's worn the uniform, who's walked in the player's shoes, who can enter a clubhouse in a dugout and be respected but also has some interest in the data and the analytics and can think and speak like a front office person. And so many teams have had success with that kind of figure who is really part of both of those worlds and helps bridge the two, which I think is really exciting because 15 years ago, it was almost an adversarial relationship where you were talking about the jocks versus the nerds and the players saying, what do these guys have to teach me? They never played the game, et cetera, et cetera. And and now I think we've learned that there is a lot that each side can teach each other and that the distinctions between those two camps have really blurred and gone away. And I think that's great that we figured out that the way to get the most out of players is to involve players in that process, which maybe seems obvious in retrospect, but was sort of ignored for a while.
0: Yeah, so a lot of stuff that you guys write about kind of seems obvious in retrospect, and then it's, well, (laughs) here we are. Um, And it it seems to be working, which is great. The last thing I want to ask you about here, Ben, is uh, one of those conduits and a guy who was pretty recently playing in the Blue Jays system, and that's Craig Breslow. And in a sense... He's such an interesting character within the book because he had success in the major leagues, tried to reinvent himself, and even using these modern technologies and equipped with all the resources that a player could hope for, he just ran up against some limits. So in a sense, it is kind of a reminder of the limits that exist even if you have all these resources around you
1: yeah and we think there's a a real movement here that's different from ever before that this was worth a book length exploration in our reporting and writing only solidified that in our minds but We didn't want to seem like we were selling snake oil and saying, anyone can be better. You just use this and suddenly you're a superstar. It doesn't always work. And sometimes it works for a while and then it goes away again. So there's a whole chapter in the book dedicated to players who tried to implement some of these things, but for whatever reason, it was not transformative in their case. Or maybe they improved for a while, but then something else sank them. You know, the league adjusted back and whatever adjustment they made wasn't working so well anymore. So Breslau was sort of the face of that chapter because he was such a cerebral guy and he was uh, involved in all of this and he invested in the technology and he set out to reinvent himself sort of by himself in a a homebrew way. And, you know, he made some meaningful changes and, and remade himself as a pitcher but he was not able to get back to the big leagues. And, you know, at advanced ages for for a baseball player and someone who'd been in the big leagues for years, he was riding the buses in AAA and with the Blue Jays in particular. And, you know, he was sort of frustrated that he couldn't quite unlock whatever it was that had allowed him to be successful in the past. And I talked to someone in the Blue Jays front office about that process of signing Breslow and working with Breslow to try to get him back to that level. And they said you know we were probably a little bit seduced by the idea that you could just kind of automatically make yourself better because we had seen Rich Hill who is a former teammate and a friend of Breslow you know at that age go from bouncing around the minors in the independent leagues to being one of the best pitchers in baseball and we thought okay Breslow's smart he's willing to make the same sorts of changes we'll sign him and he'll be our Rich Hill and There just aren't that many Rich Hills out there. It's possible that you can't all be Rich Hill. Rich Hill has this special pitch and a high spin curve ball that is difficult to teach. In his case, he already threw it. He just needed to throw it much more often. And So I think that's an interesting idea that because there have been so many transformations that wouldn't have been possible in an earlier era, there's a perception that – almost anyone could be the next breakout guy. And so with a guy like Breslow, you might be more willing to give him a longer leash in this era because you figure, well, he could be the next success story. And in his case, he wasn't in that he didn't get back to the big leagues, but that process of trying to remake himself prepared him for the next stage of his career, which was he was hired by the Cubs to be the kind of conduit that we've been talking about to play a, a central role in developing the next pitcher by applying this information. So that process that he went through made him more appealing in the next phase of his career.
0: Really cool story. One of many within the MVP machine. And I would very heartily recommend this read for any any baseball fan, any Blue Jays fan. So, so Ben, really appreciate the time and for you to break down some of the insights that you and Travis learned in the course of
1: writing this book. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: That was Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, the co-author of The MVP Machine with Travis Sachik. Really a great book. Would heartily recommend. That's it for this week on At The Letters. Next week, I'll be in Boston back with another podcast. Arden will be back from his well-deserved vacation the week after that and back on At The Letters. Thanks to Amal Delich for producing as always. We'll talk to you next week on At The Letters.